0: Lord, this morning we certainly want to focus on you and what you have revealed in your word that it may saturate our thinking and in that we would respond to you in the way that you desire. We we know that you've laid things out for us that we may have fellowship and that we may have life and life abundantly. We desire to uh, see what what we need to focus in on in order to enjoy that life that you provided. So we just commit our time to you, asking that your spirit would illumine our minds and prepare our hearts to receive what your word has to say. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Can't overemphasize the importance of knowing God's word. A lot of believers think that, well, I'm supposed to study the Bible. God wants me to study the Bible, pleases God if I study the Bible. Now, all those things are true, but more importantly, we study God's Word, not just and not even particularly or primarily to please God, even though it does, but we do it because we want to saturate our thinking with biblical concepts, a biblical worldview, biblical principles, in order that those principles will be brought to mind when we face whatever situation that we are faced with, whether it be hardship or whether it be the decision, whether it be an unbeliever. We want to think biblically. We want to think in terms of what God has revealed. We are so easily distracted. We're so easily kind of led in a different path because of uh, what we're studying in this passage. The old nature, Satan himself, distractions of the world. So we study the word primarily to fill our minds and saturate our thinking such that perhaps we might be able to remember these key principles when uh, we need them in whether it be a crisis or whatever. The central passage, I think, in chapter 6, 7, and 8 is this one that we're looking at this morning because Paul is applying what he has just laid out in the first ten verses. And then after this little paragraph, you might say, or a paragraph within a paragraph, he's going to elaborate on this application. So he kind of gives doctrine, applies it, and then he's going to elaborate on it to give us more detail all the way through the end of chapter 8. And you might notice that 11 through 14... We haven't had a single command. No do's and don'ts. That's not the Christian life. The Christian life is an understanding of who God is, what God has provided, who we are, our identity in Him, and based on that, now we can respond properly. So 11 through 14 is this response part. And then you'll notice that after that, more teaching, or more, more principles, more doctrine, you might even say. So, Kind of a pivot passage, important passage here, 11 through 14. We looked at 11 a little bit last time, and I'll remind you about it to pick up the context. So believers in every age, even in the time of the first century and in our age, face the same pressures, the same issues, maybe in slightly different ways, but the pressures are the same, and that's why what Paul wrote to the Romans is applicable To us as well. Just a reminder of the major principles that we've already looked at. This is the doctrine. These are the principles that we need to keep in mind as we go through the passage and we've exposited, I guess is that the right word, each of them in some detail. We started off with everything is based on grace and grace is available not just for justification, But grace is available particularly for sanctification or living the Christian life. The heart of the passage deals with what do we do now that we are justified? Do we continue in sin? And the emphatic answer is no, because there has been a death that took place, a death to sin. This is a new reality. We may not feel it. We may not sense it. But this is what God has said based on what Christ has done. So death to sin is a new reality. Thirdly, the knowledge of truth. I've been stressing that as I did just now in the introduction. The knowledge of truth is crucial in living the Christian life. Fourth, the essence of it is this unity that we have in Christ. The essence of new life or the Christian walk is this relationship, this unity. Paul uses the word baptism We spent, what, two weeks on it, two Sundays, because when we think of baptism, we think of a tank and people being dumped. Well, that's not what he's talking about in this passage. He's talking about this unity or this identification with Christ and what he has done. And we developed the last couple of times the concept of the old nature, and that's still there. And I made a distinction between our old self that has died that has a variety of components to it, and I tried to chart it last time, and part of that is the old nature, but there's more to it than that. And I think Paul makes a distinction in verse 6. When he talks about the body of sin, I think he's distinguishing it from what he just said in that same verse concerning the old self. The old self is the whole person, the composite that has died with Christ on the cross. And the old nature did not die because it's still there. We have to deal with it. So the old nature is an obstacle to sanctification. He's going to focus more on that in chapter 7. And then last time we saw that victory over sin is possible in Christ. Key principle. We need to always be reminded of that. So just a reminder also of in Adam... We not only have the sin nature, but we have lots of other principles or issues in in who we are. Sin is prominent. In fact, everything that we do that is sin influences. Paul says in chapter five, sin brings death. So even though we're living and our hearts are pumping, we are actually dead spiritually. And I tried to define Biblical death, particularly in this passage, in terms of more of a comprehensive idea that includes not only spiritual things, but moral things, intellectual things, emotional things, relational things, etc. So we are walking dead, you might say. Paul summarizes it in Ephesians 2.1. Characteristic of our life is disobedience, in fact, rebellion against God. We don't submit to him. And all of this brings judgment, so we're under judgment. And in Romans, judgment is not just at the end, but the potential of judgment even as we we live. And certainly we are condemned. We have a death sentence for eternity, and death kind of controls everything that we do. Death reigns like a king. In Christ, our new identity is we now have a new nature, a new capacity, a new potential, new possibilities in the Christian walk. Instead of sin dominating, grace continues. Grace grace can dominate, grace can rule. Instead of death, we have life. We've looked at life not just in terms of the future eternal life, but eternal life here and now. Life abundance. Life every moment, every day. And now we strive for, and the heart of this passage is, how do we walk? We want to walk in obedience. It's not immediate, but it's a growth process. Rather than judgment, we have Christ as our substitute, and as a result of that substitution, we have justification. In other words, we have a right standing before God, there's a negative, forgiveness of sin, And then there's a positive, the declaring of righteousness. Not the granting of righteousness, but the declaring of it. The growth or the sanctification process is growing in righteousness. And rather than death reigning, now grace can reign. So there's a a total shift, a total change, a total break from that old identity to this new identity in Christ. All of these elements we've seen in these chapters in the book of Romans. So now in verse 11, after he's explained the doctrine in uh, 1 through 10, now in verse 11, now we need to believe or trust that those things are true. We don't feel them, we don't see them, Our minds get clouded, we get distracted by whatever's happening in our life, and we sometimes don't have the blessing because we fail to believe the new identity. We go back to the old way of thinking, the old way of living. I've tried to chart the whole thing here. In verse 2, he's talking about, he asks the question, first of all, shall we continue to live in sin as we did before we were justified? He gives an emphatic answer. No, and the reason for that in verse 2 is we've died. We've experienced a death. Don't feel it. We don't feel any different after we are saved than we were before. But it's real because God says it's real if we have truly believed in him. Then he gives that principle in verse 3, this unity with Christ, the principle. Baptized into Christ's death. And that the significance of that, that unites us not with, not only with death, but with burial and resurrection and particularly resurrection. That's why it's important and significant. So in verse four, therefore we're united to him in resurrection. And then five through 10, he's kind of expanding or explaining this co-crucifixion, co-resurrection, going over the same principle, expanding it, giving us a little bit more detail, introduce this Little portion in it, kind of a picture, a visual for you of the old self. Using Mary Lee's—that's inspiration for this—is Mary Lee's uh, analogy of being in the rut. She described it verbally. This is what it looks like visually. And notice that it would be very, very difficult to get out of that rut. This is who we are in the old self. And there's lots of things that it, that are made up of this old self, old attitudes, ways that we view all things, attitudes towards people, attitudes towards God, attitudes towards life in general. So we have old attitudes, old view of self. It's hard to break away from that identity of who we are apart from Christ. We've developed a little bit of a history, you might say, or a a background of, of who we are. We might identify, if we identify with our profession as an engineer or whatever the case may be, that's our old identity. Now, God can still use those things, but there's something that has changed. So we get into this rut in these attitudes that we don't change. And the view that we have of ourselves, also old habits that we develop over time. These are ruts, sometimes harder to break than others. And old relationships sometimes need to be revised and changed or renewed or, in some cases, even abandoned. That's part of the old identity. But we have a new identity. God has kind of paved the road for us. We don't have to be in the ruts we can go at 70 or 75 miles per hour, few obstacles, few hindrances with new attitudes, but we have to break those old part of what the passage is going to deal with. A new view of ourself. This is what Paul is emphasizing. Do you not know these things or knowing this, knowing who we are in Christ, a new identity? Now we have in this paragraph, encouragement to develop new habits, new ruts even, if you will, but these are smoother ruts, you might say, like a 10-lane superhighway, and renewed relationships, or in some cases, brand new relationships. This is our new identity. That's the focus of this passage. And now he's going to exhort us along the lines of developing These things associated with this new identity. So he's dealt with the principles, with the truths that we need to rest in, and now we appropriate it first by believing. So he says, even so, in other words, even though these things are true, they're not automatic, even so, now, how do I respond? And what we have is we have to, first of all, trust what is real, trust reality, and we have the application. So it would include not just verse 11, but 12, 13, and 14 as well. That completes your little chart of that first paragraph in chapter 6. Just a reminder, even so, consider, very important word here. We've already defined it. Let me kind of remind you of what we looked at when we were in chapter 4. We first encountered this word, logizomai, is the Greek word, and we saw that it's used in a few ways. We can illustrate how it's used. It was used in a secular, non-theological sense. In biblical times, uh, it was an accounting term, a banking term, or even a mathematical term. It has the idea of counting something or adding something up and coming to a conclusion or a sum as that idea in a non-theological sense. So when it says in this context, consider, in other words, come to this conclusion, is the idea of mind. So after you take in all of the facts, now consider them to be true, basically, is what he's saying. In other words, this is reality. And just a reminder, the term is related to logic, so it also has relationships to reasoning, or thinking, or calculating. After you've made all your calculations, you've taken in all of the data, that that is true, in other words, reality, what God has revealed. Use your logic, and now you can put it to your account. That's where the banking idea comes in. So it's a mathematical, banking, reasoning idea in terms of the term, and it's used in a lot of contexts. We won't look these up. We've looked them up when we were in chapter 4. But to consider something as true. That's how it's used here in verse 11. Or regard something as true, or come to the conclusion or reason or logically think things out. And you'll come to the conclusion that this is, in fact, true, or this is reality. So if you want to copy those down to remind yourself, you can copy them and then look them up later. We looked them up before. And you can add Romans 6.11 to that. New American Standard, in fact, translates it, consider. In other words, after you've thought it through and you've evaluated all of the evidence, all of the data, this is what you need to consider as true, David. The phrase that comes to mind is deductive reasoning. Yep, that's true. Now, in chapter four and in other places, we saw it used in this theological sense. Although even the second usage is also somewhat theological, but more specifically, it in some translations it's translated to impute something. Or to credit something, like in a spiritual accounting, to credit something spiritually. That was the Romans 4 usage. And it's used in that way in other places. You saw a variety of places as well. So to impute or to put to one's account. Now in this context, when we are considering or coming to this conclusion, you could say, now I am considering or... I am believing, it's a faith word, I'm believing that I have an account that God has filled up. And then verse 12 is going to talk about drawing from that account. Does that make sense? So what's important here is, and I'm going to emphasize these imperatives. It's a present imperative and it's plural. So he's talking about the Romans in general or believers over all. He's not talking to an individual. He's talking about all believers. The present imperative, often in Scripture, and particularly in a theological sense like here, it's used in a sense of this is applicable or this is a general truth that should be heeded. In other words, it's a broad concept that should be heeded. In this context, this is something in general Every believer needs to believe. Every Christian needs to apply this first by believing these truths. So he's laid out the principles, he's laid out the truths. Now we need to keep them and consider them, particularly when we are tempted or when we are faced with a situation that our mind gets cloudy in terms of what reality is. And we forget this unity that we have with Christ. Mary Lee.
1: I, I just looked up the word impute, which I have never known what it really meant. And it means to assign a value. Yeah, and
0: so it's accounting.
1: Yeah, well, but you can say it's accounting, but since I'm not an accounting person,
0: I <laughs> kind of went past me. Sorry way. about that.
1: Yeah, but when you say you assign a value, and so I see something now that God has said, this is your value, but the old nature and Satan keeps trying to say, No no no, this is your value. This God. is your identity, and yes. So it's it's what value are we? And yep. Satan keeps saying you are of no value, you are worse than no value.
0: Or you're unable. Yeah, everything. Yeah. And God keeps saying No, nope. nope. You have a new identity that you need to account or what was the word you used? New value. The of us. Or assign assign this to you because this is reality. God, so God has said it. given me a
1: new value yes. which I didn't have before.
0: And it's God who gave you the new value. Which is hard to live by. Right. And what are we to consider as reality? He just reminds us of everything that he said in the first ten verses. <laughs> consider yourself to be dead to sin. That's a reality. That's what you put into your account. That's what you... Reason out and come to the conclusion, this is what God says is reality. Now there's two things here. The negative, there has been a break. There has been a death, a separation from the old self, the old identity. God has made a break. Before, we were in bondage to that. That bondage is no longer there. It's broken. Death to sin but alive to God. That's the positive. And he's developed that in terms of resurrection. We are identified not only with his crucifixion, in that we were as if we were on the cross with Christ, but also just as real as Christ's resurrection is, it is as if we were raised with him as well. And chapter 8 is going to expand upon the idea of resurrection power. There's power available. So that's what we consider. That's our new identity. That's who we are. Even though we get clouded in it and we forget it and need constant reminder, we study the word in order that we may solidify and continually reshape our thinking such that we understand in the midst at those hard times, what is real from God's perspective. We are alive to God in Christ Jesus. We have a whole new area of options that we have available to us as believers. So basically, he's calling on us to believe what he has said, and particularly what Paul has said in the first 10 verses. And now we appropriate that new identity that's 6.12-14 and he's going to continue giving imperatives or commands. The other sentences that we've looked at are in what you might describe grammatically as in the indicative mood. The indicative mood are statements of fact grammatically. This is the way language works. Imperatives are things that are commands or things that we are exhorted to do if you will. Make sense? So we're going to have a series of things that we need to appropriate or things that we need to do. It starts by believing the facts of what God has revealed. And we have a long sentence, verses 12 to 13, and I think we went over the main clauses. Do you remember the main verbs here? If you have a clause, you'll have a main verb. How many clauses did we identify last time? Main clauses or independent clauses? Connie has three, three fingers up. you Remember the main verbs? And notice what kind of verbs are they. They're imperatives. What's the first one? If you include the negation, you could say do not let rain. Do not let something rain. In this case, sin. Second one? Do not go on presenting, we'll include the negative there, that's the verb, and what's the third one? Present, that's the verb, okay? So there they are, therefore do not let sin reign, I include the sin there, do not go on presenting, and then semicolon, but the alternative, present. Three imperatives, we already saw one, now we have three more in this passage. Okay? Therefore, in other words, once you have believed, now you have before you the truth of what God has said, and you're putting your trust and faith in what God has done and what God has said. Now, how do I appropriate that in order to experience it in my everyday living? And the first imperative, therefore, do not let sin reign. And we need to take a look at that word reign. It's the same one we saw in chapter 5. And just to illustrate it, and I'm not going to go through all the verses again, but it has this idea of a king reigning on a throne. In fact, that's the more common usage. And if you remember, we looked up the the basic meaning is to rule as a king. And we saw the usage in terms of a literal king in Matthew 2.12. That was Herod. Ruling as a king, referring to him in rule as a ruler. Christ himself rules as a king. First 1 Corinthians 15.25 Believers in the millennial kingdom will rule with Christ as kings or in some manner. Christ being king of kings and lord of lords, lord of lords. So Revelation 5.10 Revelation two five referring to believers, there's other passages as well. Romans passage, when we looked it up, it talks about death reigning, like a king. Romans 5.14, Romans 5.17, and we also saw grace can reign. That's the alternative, that's the contrast. That's 5.21. Same word that we have here, same concept here. As we have in uh, chapter 5. So the four imperatives. The first one. We have a present imperative. And these are like principles. One of them is believing this new identity. This new truth. New identity truth. Verse 11. And now we have the idea of. For all believers in a general sense. Stop. Sins. Reign. In other words. The domination, the, the reign has been broken. So if sin still has influence in us, it's a choice that we make. In other words, before we were believers, there was nothing else we could do except live in sin and death. But what Paul is saying here, and the Holy Spirit is speaking, we have died. In other words, a death has taken place. A break has been made. We still have a tendency, but we are not in bondage. So he uses this word, don't let it rain. Don't put yourself back into slavery under its reign. So stop that. In other words, let the word of God work in you in such a way that you break away. And he's going to be more specific as we move through the passage. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. That's related to the verse 6 when he talked about body of sin. What is he talking about there? Whatever that is, whether it's a nature, sin nature, some like to describe it in probably an easy way of describing that tendency within us to go back to that old identity. Make sense? In your mortal bodies, that's the source. In other words, your physical bodies that are going to die at age 99 or whatever, 98. One year away, I'm only 98. In your mortal bodies, that's also, he's already introduced this concept when he talked about the body of sin, he's alluding back to that, where the old nature resides. So don't let it rain so that you obey its lust. There's the volitional aspect. In other words, it's a choice. Temptation is put before us. It looks attractive. But we have another option. We don't have to follow through with the temptation. In fact, what is First Corinthians, what is it? 10.13. 10.13. There you go. With the temptation.
1: With the temptation.
0: With the There's an, a way of an escape. Very good. So, we have an option here. We have a choice. Before we were believers, we had no option. Everything we did was controlled by sin and ending in this comprehensive death so that you obey its lusts. In other words, don't continue obeying the lusts. Now, the word lusts here don't get sidetracked. In fact, let's look up a few of these so that we kind of understand this concept. All of us have desires. God has built us such that we have needs, And those needs produce within us desires to satisfy those needs. God has also built us in such a way that many of those needs are in rebellion to to him and in terms of the unbeliever, all of them. But now in this context that we have a, a new option, there are other things that are available to us as well. So let's take a look at this word. It's the common word epithumia. And it just basically has the idea of desiring something. And if you look at all of the usages of it, I can't remember, I've got the number in my notes. If you want it, I can tell you somewhere around 30, 30, 35, somewhere in there. I can't remember exactly. It's used as a neutral term. Mark 4.19. In fact, if somebody looked that one up. David's got it. It's used in a good sense of Jesus himself in Luke 22.15. Somebody want to do that one? And just for your notes, we won't look this one up. (laughs) Philippians 1.23. Paul has desires that are good and positive in a good sense. Who's got Luke 22.15? Mary Lee. But the abundance of usages are in a bad sense because... In general, we are sinful people, and because of that, it's used in a bad sense. It's used of lusts like we have here, and they're not always sexual. And here's a few examples, Romans one twenty-four. We won't look that one up, but let's look up James 1.14. Jeremy, do you want to do that one? 14 and 15. Another good one to look up would be First John 2.16 and 17. Connie's got that one. So it's sometimes in New Mark and Standard translates these lusts. Other translations may choose other words. Same word. So the word doesn't always mean the same thing depending on the context. And translators sometimes choose different ways of translating it depending on the context. Oftentimes it's used in a sense of an evil desire or a sinful desire or harmful desire. Who wants to do First Timothy 6 9? Bill, do you want to do that one? It's even used in the sense of coveting in the next chapter, referring to the Ten Commandments that convicts Paul in that context. Romans seven, seven through eight, we won't look that one up. Translate the same it's the same word in all of these contexts. And desires of the sinful nature. Desires of the sinful nature probably this context, and probably the key passage in Galatians 5, 16, and 17. You want to look that one up next, David? Okay, you got the first one, right? Yep. Do Mark 4.19. In a neutral sense, doesn't specify anything negative, doesn't specify anything positive in it. In the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the lusts of other things entering in, choke the world, and it becomes empty. Now, actually, that translation kind of puts it in a negative context. Yeah. But I think in general, I don't think it's necessary. I think it's somewhat more neutral. It just says lust was a thing, so it isn't Right. And New American Standard, I think, just translates it desires for other things, good and bad, could be either. In a good sense, Luke 22, 15, this is mm-hmm. Jesus himself. Jesus says, and he said to them, I have
1: earnestly desired to." Be this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus
0: desiring. Jesus had desires. So this is part of humanity. This is part of who we are. This is part of how God has created us. Desires in and of themselves are not evil. You could even say lusts in themselves are not evil. It's what they lead us to do that is becomes evil. So that's a good sense. We won't look up Philippians one twenty three, but Paul desires as well some positive things for the believers in Philippi. Lusts, James 1.14-15, and that's how New American Standard translates it. We've got that one. So each 1 is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Enticed by his own lust. He's Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings worth death. So that's epithumia. Same word as is used of Jesus. In terms of Jesus, positive. In terms of Paul, positive. In Philippians 1. But in James, sinful or evil. 1 John 2, 16 and 17. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh. Lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes. Lust of
1: the eyes. And the fight is not the father. But is of the, and the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides
0: forever. Same word, epithumia, same idea, except here in a negative usage. First Timothy 6, 9, you got that one Those who want to be rich fall into temptation, trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruins. Okay, foolish and harmful desires, epithumia, same word. In this, it says those who desire to be rich. Okay, right? desire. Okay. And different translation it's his was those who want to. Be. Okay. Yeah, that that's epithubia. Good correction there. Did I give you uh, Second Timothy or what? What did I give you? Oh, you, I already did mine. Oh, James. Oh, okay. Another one, Second Timothy four three. We won't look that one up. We won't look up the Romans one. Galatians five. David's got that one. Five sixteen and seventeen. 16. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Lust of the flesh. the flesh. That's where these evil desires come from. And very specifically, Galatians 5. Keep reading. The flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. These are contrary to one another, so you cannot do the things you would. And I think that the usage in the passage we're looking at also is referring to our mortal bodies to obey its evil desires, its evil, in this context, lusts, the desires of the sinful nature, okay? And then verse 13, and do not go on presenting or do go on negating, that's the whole verb, I include the negation in there, that word is an interesting word, Paristemi. me. Greek word there, and if you study its usage, you're going to find out that it has different uses as well, there's at least three, it can be used in kind of an everyday sense, to stand by someone, in other words, just walking along and standing by someone, or togetherness, the idea, or to be near, 2 Timothy 4.17, for the sake of time, we won't look these up, I'll just give them to you and you can jot them down. Just simply, and it's used in some context where you're just standing together with someone to support them or to be with them, just the idea of togetherness, basically. It's also used, probably not the Romans passage in terms of literalness, but I think in terms of a metaphorical offering of yourself. Present yourself as what? A living sacrifice, The whole context there is like an Old Testament sacrifice that priests in the Old Testament would place on an altar. Romans 12 is encouraging us to do something similar in a spiritual sense, to offer a sacrifice. So it can be used in this sense of offering something like a sacrifice or offering something for a particular use. And just in general, to offer or to present something. We won't look up Luke 2.22, but it, it refers to the Mary and Joseph. When Jesus was 12 years old, what did they do? To they took him to the temple, and specifically it says they presented him. Same word. So it's in a sense of putting something or somebody, in this case Jesus, the parents... Somewhat sanctified him or put him in a place where there would be blessing, you might say. Who wants to do 2 Corinthians 4.14? i got it. All right. And Connie, wants to you do? Colossians 1. Do 4.14, Mary Lee. Okay. Knowing that he raised
1: the Lord Jesus will raise us also with
0: Jesus and will bring us with you into his presence. So it's like... Uh, Actually, pres- the word actually is presenting yes. us in the future. Yes. We'll present us also along with Jesus. Yeah. In the future, we will be presented like Jesus was presented in the temple. We will be put before God himself in the very presence. And 11.2 is very similar to that. 2 Corinthians 11.2. Connie, do you have Colossians 1.22? says, In the body of
1: his flesh through death. To present you approachable
0: in His sight. That's future. We will be presented pure, glorified before the Father. You get 28 as well? One twenty-eight, Colossians one twenty-eight. 28. preach, warning every man
1: and teach every man in all wisdom that we may present every
0: man in Christ Jesus. Present before God, before Jesus in the future. That's how it's used here, except it's not in the future. It's in this present tense sense. In other words, present yourself, or do not, this is the negative, we'll look at the same word, the alternative, in a positive. So it's negated, so when it says, and do not go on presenting, it's as if you're making yourself available. Don't make yourself available to sin. That's kind of the general principle. Now, it can work itself out in a lot of ways. All of us have tendencies, all of us have ruts that we used to walk in in the past. If it's whatever area, I hate to be too specific, but if it's anger, in other words, we have a rut of anger, well, don't put yourself in situations that are easily going to raise up that issue or that problem. Uh, none of you have this problem, but some people in their past, alcohol was an issue. Well, don't drive by those liquor stores is the idea here. Don't present yourself in a situation that it's going to cause you to get back into that old rut. So whatever area that you can come up with, and we, every one of us have different areas. You might think in terms of what is your area that you need to kind of avoid So that's the starting point, because now you want to begin avoiding those ruts, because we have the tendency of going back and falling back in, getting off the superhighway, if you will, back into the muddy, rutted road. And we're presenting the members of your body, in other words, in a very physical way, or a very practical sense, those tendencies. Eve should have avoided that tree. But she presented herself before the tree, made herself vulnerable to the temptation of Satan. So, those areas that we are vulnerable, we need to take them and avoid them. Yield or don't present yourself to them. That's the beginning of the sanctification process or part of the sanctification process. Very general, but we can apply that very specific. Depending on our lusts, depending on our desires. And the same could be said even in that sexual area. If that's an area, then you avoid those situations where you would be tempted. And it's talking about the members of your body because they are inclined and they are tempted and they have that nature. They want to, our members want to go back. That first John passage, whether it be our eyes, the lust of the eyes, or the other phrases that are described in that passage as well. Members of your body, and depending on our weaknesses and our inclinations. So do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin, and interestingly here, as instruments of unrighteousness. We won't look up the usages of instruments, but basically that's a military term. And in the New Testament, it's even translated weapons. And it can be used in a everyday military sense of armament or weapons. In fact, found one translation that even translates it as armor. So we have an, a military image here. You might even say, don't present, you know, the military, they, you present arms. That's part of, of a military parade. And the command, present arms, and you put your weapon out there. That kind of has the imagery that he's talking about here. But he's saying, don't do that. In other words, don't make those arms available or those instruments of unrighteousness. Translated instruments, some context, weapons. Now he's going to use the same phraseology over here when he's talking about the positive. So we have a third imperative at the beginning of verse 13. Don't yield to the old nature, or don't put yourself in a vulnerable position. Evaluate what things you need to stay away from, what things you need to avoid, in order that you not fall or have the tendency to fall into those traps. But we have an alternative, but present, same word. Now we're going to present arms, but we're going to present arms in the positive sense. Present yourself, same verb, Paristemi, same verb, present yourselves to God. Same idea of putting ourselves before him. Present yourself to God. But now, in verse 13, it's an aorist imperative. The difference between the present and the aorist imperative, the aorist imperative emphasizes more the, uh, I guess you could say, the seriousness, or the, the emphasis is... It's a stronger imperative. Stronger imperative. In fact, the strongest way you can make a command is you put it in the aorist imperative. So it's a strong command to present yourselves to God. You always have an alternative. You always have a positive. You don't just break habits. What we have to do is replace them with something else. So if you're battling with some habit, Think in terms of something that would be glorifying to God. Every time you're tempted in that, think in terms of replacing it with something positive. Developing new smooth ruts, you might say. New habits, new things that occupy our our lives. But you have to set the others aside and then you have to do the two together because you have to replace with a positive. In fact, that's a basic principle of biblical counseling. You always have to replace the negative with something positive. David? Uh, it's not on your list, but Revelation 21-2. And I met John saw the holy city in New Jerusalem coming down God uh, prepared as a bride. Okay, and I think that's the same word. Did you? Yes, I'm sure it is. Okay. The idea is this is a brand new replacement. Replacement, yeah. So... Just as we are inclined to make ourselves available to those old habits, old ways, old attitudes, now we have to consciously, with an imperative here, a command, present ourselves to God, or you might even say yield, present yourself to God. And how do we do it? As those, he was reminding us here, as those alive from the dead. This is the whole thing that he's been talking about, first ten verses. In other words, that's the reality. Remind yourself of what is real. Your new identity is we are alive. Resurrection power from the dead. And the complement, the negative, we have the positive. Your members, same word, or body parts, present them as instruments of, of righteousness to God. In other words, things that have eternal value. And in some cases, they may be just simply when you're tempted to certain areas. Now I'm going to read scripture that pertains to those areas. That's yielding, and that is helpful, and that can remove the temptation. In in some cases, that is the way of escape. Or it may be something more practical in terms of uh, some good act that you might do for another person, if that would be appropriate, and you had the opportunity so those are the four imperatives. And the passage concludes, for sin, and we won't have time to develop this, we'll pick up here next time. The four here, just kind of a conclusion, kind of a concluding thought. This is how we appropriate the truths that he laid out. And now, this can be taken in a couple of ways. Some theologians look at this for sin shall not be master over you as more of a principle. But actually, the uh, the grammar here, it's a future active indicative. And sometimes, and possibly in this context, and I'm inclined to take it this way because of the other imperatives, it almost falls into the category of a future Idea In terms of another imperative, it's not strictly speaking an imperative, but it is something like you might tell your children tomorrow you will go to school. Now, you're not just prophesying, you're putting it in the future. But what are you saying? Tomorrow you will go in the sense of you don't have a choice. (laughs) In other words, it's a, a form of command. And the future active indicative can be used in that sense. And I think it's used in that sense. And so when it says you shall it shall not have dominion over you, it's certainly looking at as you continue to live your life out, but it has this idea of this is what you must do. In other words, don't let it rule you like a king. Bill. Isn't the aorist tense also a continuation? So but, um, it's, a, it's a continuing imperative, it's not a single... No, no, the present is the, is the more continuing. The aorist oftentimes, and it loses some of this when you get away from the strict aorist, like in an imperative, generally the aorist looks at a point in time, in other words, a, a finality to it. But you're on the right track. In this context, it's not talking about do it once for all. It is a continuing thing. It was striking me that it looks like number one is do it now, number two, continually present yourself to God, and number three, in the future present yourself, or sin shall not happen. Well, I think all of them would fall into this continuous, everyday aspect. Okay? Okay. So, sin shall not have dominion over you, Shall not be master over you. And by the way, there's a different word there than that idea of ruling as a king. It's similar. It's related to the word Lord or Lordship. We'll develop that further next time. And he gives the reason for you are not under law, but under grace. Uh, There's some different possibilities there that all develop as well. I think what he's saying here, you're not under the dispensation of law. But you're under a totally different dispensation. We're under a dispensation of grace.
1: Well, it goes back to that Corinthians one uh, that uh, God provides a way out for yes. temptation, but when we are without His grace, without the power of His Spirit, without any of this stuff, you can do nothing but sin.
0: Yep, and we'll, we'll no develop that next time because there's yep exactly. Including thought, living the Christian life includes trusting God's work, what He has done, and what He has declared, what He has said, but it also involves our yielding to Him, yielding our members, the negative as well as the positive. David, go ahead. For as much as you are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not tablets of stone, and tables of the heart. Yep. Yep, that's that. Second Corinthians, you might notice from the outline, I put in parentheses there, verses 1 through 10 deals with our mind, our thinking, our intellect. Verse 11 deals with our heart, believing, trusting. And then uh, 13 through 14 deals with our volition. In other words, we choose between two opposing options. Who wants to close for us? Connie?
1: I pray that as we go forth into our, we would choose truth. I um, don't know truth to choose um, in all of our children. And I want to let Dick, uh, who is in the call, on um, a mission team me, that it would be safe healthy, um, to be healthy to show Christ voice in that all the neighborhoods that they go into. Your father, Felinda and your sister, weathering the weather well, and that her time is more rich in the Father. I pray that for each of us that we would have, just rich in joy and laughter. His name is Jesus. Amen.